science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Very special show coming up today. Uh, Our guest is Dr. Mark Post, and we're speaking to him from Europe, from the Netherlands, where he is a professor of vascular physiology at Maastricht University. But the reason that uh, he is sort of famous globally is because he was the first one to come up with a cultured meat hamburger. Now, this goes back about 10 years to 2013, and that burger was pretty expensive. It cost something like $300,000 to produce, and uh, obviously it made quite a splash in the media. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good afternoon. You have a, both a, a physician's degree and you're also a PhD. But I bet yes. that when you got into uh, either of those degrees, you never thought that you'd be making cultured meat. Is that a correct uh, assumption? <laughs> that's a that's a correct <laughs> assumption. Yeah, I actually did patient care for a couple of years, but uh, moved quite quickly into uh, biomedical research, uh, mostly cardiovascular, uh, different universities, and then um, yeah, I ended up making hamburgers. Yes, it's, it's quite a jump. Now, I know that you spent some time in the U.S. You were at Harvard and you were also at Dartmouth yep. and doing bi- biomedical research. And um, I guess it was uh, then that you got into what one would call tissue engineering. Is, yep. is that where yep. the interest started? Uh, okay, yeah, so maybe... yeah, it, yeah, it was kind of sparked uh, through a couple of uh, conversations um, at uh, when I was back at Harvard. Uh, but then when I moved back to the Netherlands, I was employed by, among others, by the Eindhoven University of Technology and the Biomedical Engineering Department. And there we started to do tissue engineering. So let's just um, make sure that people understand what we mean by tissue engineering. So can you kind of describe that in a simple way? Yeah, tissue engineering is essentially a technique to replace tissues um, in the body that are either dysfunctional or um, are lost through accidents or surgery. And um, uh, we use biomaterials um, and cells to recreate tissues or organs um, that are uh, yeah, uh, meant for replacement in the body. So the, the long-term possibility for humans might be to construct a liver in the lab or construct a kidney in the lab? Exactly, yes. And in fact, those um, programs are ongoing worldwide in various stages and also pretty much every tissue except for the brain, uh, but even heart tissue, for instance. So how did you transition from this, from human research, into uh, what eventually became this cultured meat project? Yeah, it was kind of a coincidence. Uh, there was a guy in the Netherlands uh, called Willem van Eelen who has been obsessed with this idea most of his life, but he wasn't a scientist. 
And so back in 2005 or so, he assembled a number of scientists from Eindhoven, Utrecht and Amsterdam to work on this project and got a grant from the Dutch government. Um, and as I mentioned, I was working in Eindhoven at that time and became gradually part of that project. And uh, yeah, uh, got uh, sort of triggered and uh, excited by it and continued even after the proje uh, project was finished. Now, of course, there's a motivation for producing lab-grown meat, aside from just the pure science of it, right? It does have certainly yeah. commercial potential. And, of course, it has also potential beneficial impact on the environment. So yeah, what, absolutely. what, yeah, is, what is the real motivation exactly. here? Yeah, for me, it's mostly the environment. Um, uh, so I've... You know, there there are many potential benefits, uh, as you mentioned, uh, environment is one of them, animal welfare, uh, food security, uh, less use of antibiotics, uh, less zoonoses coming from uh, intensive uh, farming. So there are a lot of externalities with livestock agriculture that we uh, would like to get rid of. And yeah, this kind of uh, checks all those boxes. And that's why, in addition to, as you mentioned, indeed, kind of the, the scientific interest and, you know, it's just fun to make these muscle and fat tissues. It's, it really is a big driver that there could be such a big potential societal impact. Well, certainly animal agriculture is not an environmentally friendly business, right? I mean, this is no. very clear uh, because so much of the world's crops are, are dedicated to animal feed. And of yep. course, that means that, that we're um, using fertilizer, using pesticides, we're using a lot of transportation. And then, of course, there are the greenhouse gas emissions associated with that. And the animals themselves, of course, release methane. Uh, so certainly there's impetus for trying to find a better way. But the trouble is that most people will tell us that uh, animals taste good. So yep. when we are right, so when we explore the possibilities of alternatives, uh, it has to be compatible in terms of, of of taste. Now, so let's get back to your 2013 uh, production of that famous uh, hyper expensive uh, hamburger. Yep. So what 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 was involved in in producing it in in the first place? Um, well, first of all, um, we had to get money to do this. Uh, and uh, <laughs> this is where um, uh, Sergey Brin from Google came in. Uh, he said, I'm going to fund this project, which was, you know, quite fortunate because it's difficult to get funding for projects like these, especially at that time. Um, so that was one. And then, um, of course, we needed the cells taken from a cow, um, from a biopsy from a cow. Um, and then, um, yeah, just a lot of patience and manpower and um, a little bit of luck to, uh, to make that happen. Um, the, the technology was essentially already there. Um, it was just, it needed to be adapted a little bit to uh, do this at slightly larger scale, but it was actually quite a tedious job at that time, you know, uh, to uh, one or two of my lab technicians working for three and a half months pretty repetitive work to uh, to make the 10,000 muscle fibers that went into that hamburger. 
Now, the original biopsy, the cow, where in the cow is it taken from? Um, uh, this particular one was taken from the butt. Um, we have since then uh, used various locations and compared them. Um, and there's not really a, a major difference between the different locations. But this particular one was taken from the butt. And it's a very small sample, I assume, that you, you need. Half a but gram. it must you yeah, half a gram. And uh, it must have some stem cells in it, I assume, which are then going to uh, yeah. multiply and differentiate into into muscle cells, right? That's that's right, the, the right. whole idea. Okay, so yeah. uh, this is, of course, where the technology becomes uh, the, very interesting. And I want to get down to uh, discussing exactly, you know, how all of this works, but we just have to take a bit of a break here. We have to check what traffic is like all about, and then we'll be right back with Dr. Mark Post. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I'm back with Dr. Mark Post, um, who's professor of uh, vascular physiology at Maastricht University in the Netherlands, and we are chatting about cultured meat. Uh, Dr. Post was the first one to produce a hamburger from laboratory-grown meat 10 years ago, and that project cost something like $300,000. What was the actual cost? Where, where did that money go? What were the expenses involved in producing that burger? Um, it's, it was mostly um, consumables. So uh, the, the medium, the, the, the growth fluid to let the cells grow, uh, so the feed for the cells, if you like, uh, that's pharmaceutical-grade material that's very expensive. Uh, you need some growth factors, uh, which are also very, very expensive. And, of course, it was quite a bit of labor in a, um, not in a production environment, but in an academic environment. So all in all, um, it was roughly that cost. Now, uh, we also had some investments. So I'm pretty sure that if we would grow five of them, the fifth would have been much more, much cheaper, but still um, uh, unimaginably exp expensive for, uh, right. for food. So basically, you, you took a sample from the butt of a cow, you put it in a Petri dish, and you added nutrients to encourage those cells to multiply. Is that basically it? Right, right, yes. And uh, yeah, you extract actually the, the stem cells, so all our muscle, and also that of a cow and most other creatures, um, are filled with stem cells um, sitting there waiting to repair the tissue if it's injured. And when right. it's injured, they, they multiply and they form muscle tissue and they can do that. They typically do that inside of the cow, but they can also do that outside of the cow. So we took the cells out, let them multiply many, many, many times and let them make muscle tissue what they are good at. And then when we had 10,000 of these muscle fibers, we combined them into a patty. So at first, it all started in one Petri dish? Yeah. And then yeah, it you transfer Yeah, very you small sample, yeah. Right, and you transfer some of those cells to another Petri dish and to another Petri dish, et cetera, right? And then you harvest the fibers and you somehow mash them together and you got the hamburger. Right, right. Now, and, 
um, that one hamburger contained one and a half billion cells. Um, so uh, you have to have a lot of petri dishes. In this case, we used 10 layer cell factories, but it's essentially the same principle. And then you had a tasting session, right? Where you actually had a journalist uh, or more than one journalist taste this thing. Yeah, 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 correct. And, yeah. And what was the uh, what was the verdict? Well, they they said it was very good that it really tasted like uh, meat. They had some other qualifiers that the texture was not exactly the same yet was more like um almost like a dough or a uh, what did they say a cake or something um but the taste was uh, was apparently really good um now i tasted it myself i also thought it was good but obviously i'm biased um and they <laughs> they uh, commented that it was uh, the best sort of mimic of a hamburger that they that they had so better than the plant-based that they usually um taste yeah. so that was a good outcome fortunately now this was only muscle cells right there's there was no fat cells reproduction in, in this burger. correct yeah yeah so that would be uh, that certainly would affect the taste right because a lot of the the taste in the meat would come from fat yeah so absolutely so yeah so um that's uh, what we immediately after that when we started to you know, scale this or scale this up and, and make a bigger program out of it. This is the first thing we started to do is make fat tissue. So is it now possible to also culture the fat cells together yeah. with the muscle cells so that yeah. you actually... Well, they, are, they are cultured separately because they require different nutrients and different conditions. Um, okay. So we make the muscle tissue separately and the fat tissue separately, and then we combine them uh, in, into a hamburger. But uh, from the, the biopsy that we take from the butt of a cow or another um, muscle, we take both the muscle stem cells out of that tissue, but also the fat stem cells out of that tissue. Okay. So you are actually really mimicking uh, the meat in both the the, uh, the protein content and the and the fat content. Now, of yeah. course, they, yeah. as, as you mentioned, the the nutrient is a real real issue. I mean, uh, obviously, <laughs> we have the, the the law in science that matter cannot be created or destroyed; it just changes from one form to to the other. So, right. if you were <laughs> right, so that if we're going to have this massive amount of of, uh, of cells, uh, they have to be grown from something. You have to give them the right stuff in order to, to make up all the mass. So these yeah. are the amino yeah. acids, the sugars, the, the, the growth factors, etc. that you, you right. have to put into these, uh, well, first into the Petri dishes and then larger scale into, into the vats, uh, etc. Now, as I understand yeah. it, this is, this is where a significant expense comes in. Right. If you're going to, to scale this up to a massive scale, uh, the cost for the the feed of these cells has to come down. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yes. So. Um, so, yeah, let me make one point clear, because that's really important um, in a cow. You need to put eight times as much food feed as you get out of it. A cow is a very inefficient 
converter of its feed into um, uh, animal proteins for us. Um, chicken is a lot better, um, but the because our cells are a contained system and you can uh, recycle many, many materials, you can use that feed as efficient as possible and hopefully have a one-to-one -one conversion. We're not there yet, but a one-to-one -one conversion of the feedstock that you put into it and the animal pro proteins that you get out of it. Um, but the other part, and, and this is important because as you mentioned in the beginning, um, uh, livestock agriculture uh, consumes about 70% of all the crops that we are, we are producing on this planet. Um, and because it's such an inefficient system, we are essentially wasting a lot of uh, feedstock that we could use to feed um, in the future 10 billion people. Um, the other component of this um, feed uh, medium, we call it, is that it is a pharmaceutical grade because it came out of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and of course, there the prices are extremely high and they don't need to be high. Uh, we are gradually moving to uh, feed or food grade nutrients like the amino acids and the sugar and the vitamins and the minerals and even the growth factors um, so that eventually we can make this uh, cheaper. There's an interesting, funny uh, website where they have sort of calculated how much it would cost to make a chocolate chip cookie if you start with pharmaceutical ingredients. And then it's about a thousand dollars. Yeah, that would be an expensive uh, cookie, right? And, uh, right. and go go along with that expensive burger. All right. So I, I also want to get into um, the possibilities for the future. How the cost is going to come down? Talk about some of the companies that are already producing meat, and uh, some of the restaurants where you can actually go and buy some of this cultured meat. But first, we're going to have to take a break, check uh, what is going on in the world. We'll check with news, and we'll be right back after that with Dr. Mark Post. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. So we are back with Dr. Mark Post. Uh, he's speaking to us from the Netherlands at Maastricht University, where he's a professor of vascular physiology. And uh, he is into the production of cultured meat, which has great potential for the future. So we were talking about the medium that is necessary in order to uh, cause these cells to grow and the expense. Uh, there's another question that comes up. Uh, what component of that medium is sourced from animals, if any? Um, so it used to be serum, which is a blood product from animals. Um, and that is traditionally for the last hundred years used to grow cells outside of the body. But if, obviously from the beginning, we said we're not going to do that because, you know, this is serum coming from cows. And the whole purpose of the project is to reduce the number of cows, and then we don't have enough serum to culture the cells. So it's kind of a, it was immediately obvious that we, we could no longer use serum. And ever since uh, in vitro fertilization, um, serum-free media, serum-free feed for cells uh, have been developed. And uh, so we have just adapted that to 
make to do that for bovine uh, muscle cells and bovine fat cells. So where where is this feed source from? Does it come from plant sources or? or, or uh, yeah, the, the the amino acids and the sugars they come from uh, plants. Um, the growth factors that we need to replace serum um, are recombinantly made, just like insulin in a bacteria or a yeast. Um, and we now have a couple of other expression systems, but th these are the traditional expression systems. Very right. very similar so, so to how insulin is being made right. at the moment. So there's some recombinant DNA technology involved here, right? Uh, I yeah. Mean, there's, yeah, correct. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, and I mean, here in, in North America, we are, you know, quite used to genetic modification, although I've had my battles, you know, with the anti-GMO yeah. people. But I know that in, in, in Europe, of course, people are much more circumspect about this technology. So does does that raise some issues in terms of producing the cultured meat that people may be worried about biotech uh, components? No, not really, because, um, you know, this is, uh, they make a distinction if it's a recombinant, if it's a protein that is recombinantly made, but there are no recombinant genes in the product itself. It's just the protein that, that comes out of this technology. So that is a processing aid, if you like, and not an ingredient. So they are skittish um, about uh, GMO as food ingredients, but not in uh, if it's a processing aid and the, the, the transgenes or remnants thereof um, cannot be found in the food itself. So, mm -hmm. so that's the distinction. And obviously, you know, we, we, everybody is used to recombinant proteins when it comes to, for instance, insulin. Right. And uh, uh, the interesting thing about all of this is is going to be consumer acceptance, of course. Yep. And that will depend on, on taste. It, it will depend on cost. It will certainly depend on, uh, on a lot of uh, factors. And yeah. uh, so, um, you know, the question is, uh, how far along uh, is this right now? Now, I know that you yourself has, have uh, started a, a startup uh, uh, company, Mosa Meat, right? What is, yep. what, is the, what is the intent there? Well, yeah, the intent is unchanged, is to bring this to the market and to let everybody, and to bring it as a commodity so that, you know, it, it ends up um, at uh, McDonald's and Burger Kings. And so to really make an impact in uh, meat production from, uh, from livestock. So that's the, that's the intention. For that, the quality needs to be good and it needs to be uh, relatively cheap. And uh, people indeed need to accept it. Now, for the last thing, um, a, a number of surveys have been organized since 2011, actually. Uh, quite a few, like 140 surveys. And gradually over time, we see at least intellectually a better acceptance of these products. <coughs> Sorry, up to sometimes 60, 70% of the population say, okay, I think this is a good idea and probably would eat this. Um, which is, yeah, we don't know how people are eventually are going to choose in the supermarket and it's difficult to um, predict that at the moment because there's no real cheap product on the market yet. It's very uh, localized in, in a couple of restaurants in the world, so you cannot do those, uh, those studies yet. 
But the fact that people are at least rationally and intellectually ready to accept this is quite encouraging. And, you know, in the end, I, I use a different example here in the Netherlands, but, um, uh, you know, in the end, in, in North America, uh, you have to imagine that sometime 60 years ago, there was a person, a courageous person, who for the first time ate a hot dog. <laughs> yeah, maybe we won't say they're still courageous if they're still eating them. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could argue that. <laughs> but, you know, it, it didn't look like a traditional piece of meat. Um, uh, people probably didn't really understand how it was made and what it exactly was. Um, and yet you can get people to eat this. Um, and eventually you develop kind of a trust in that product. And you say, okay, you know, my neighbor ate it. He didn't die. So apparently you can eat this. And then it gradually, I mean, even further back, uh, there was hesitance when uh, first frozen products came onto the market because people thought that once meat had been frozen, you could no longer eat it. Well, as you know, um, uh, historically, every new technology is first opposed, whether it's yep. pasteurization, whether it's microwave ovens, whether it's uh, exactly. cell phones, example, yes. <laughs> you know, or, or whether it's uh, cell culture meat. At first, every all of these are opposed. And then eventually, of course, they went their way into our lifestyle. And we see that there isn't any huge problem with them. And they become... Uh, accepted but there is of course always that small alarmist minority who will not accept any anything that uh, science brings but anyway there, yeah. there are a couple of um, north american companies right there's uh, upside yep. foods and and uh, uh, another one with good food and they they're be, actually yeah. producing this uh, on a on a reasonable scale and they're making it available at at, at least a couple of restaurants in in, in the us Right. That's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not not cheap. I mean, a meal, uh, you know, a meal there costs you what a hundred, hundred fifty dollars of uh, of these. Uh, I I think I think they have some chicken, right? They have some cultured yeah. chicken. Yeah, they have chicken uh, products. Yes. Have, have you ever tasted was, the chicken product? Um, no, I've tasted the one in Singapore. Um, was a chicken nugget, and uh, you know, it, it's a chicken nugget tastes like a chicken nugget, um, and um, uh, that was only partially, and most products are only partially cultured. These are just the first uh, beginnings, and one big hurdle that was taken um, to allow them onto the market is to get regulatory approval in Singapore and in the U.S. from both the FDA and the USDA. And this so has happened, so the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That so, was a big hurdle, yeah. and now these companies are gearing up to indeed scale up production and make it uh, make better and better products as we all are trying to do and um, to make them cheaper. Okay, I have a couple more little issues that we can talk about, but we've got to take our last break. Uh, we'll check what traffic is like out there. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. My guest today is uh, Dr. Mark Post. 
and we're chatting with him from Europe, from the Netherlands, where he's a professor of vascular physiology at Maastricht University, and we are talking about cultured meat and uh, its potential. Uh, there's some uh, question about exactly what this product should be called, right? And I mean, we've yeah. been, I, I've been using the term cultured meat, but what are some of the other sort of names that have been bandied about? Yeah, um, uh, this has been a struggle from the very beginning. And we started in uh, back in 2013 with cultured meat and cultured beef. Uh, this has been somewhat changed into cultivated meat or cultivated beef, which to a non-native um, English speaker, for me, it kind of sounds the same. Um, uh, but recently, um, the FAO came up, uh, FAO and actually also the, the U.S. government, the U.S. government came up with uh, cell-cultured meat. Um, and that is to, because eventually, then there's some reason for it. And then the FAO, uh, who is organizing a um, sort of harmonization of regulation among different uh, uh, geographies, um, they have coined the term cell-based meat, which personally I find a very bad term um, because every meat is cell-based. Uh, right, we right. as people are cell-based, so I, I don't think that's a very dis discriminative term between um, uh, cultivated meat and traditional meat. But uh, one of the arguments why they didn't like cultured meat is that in some languages it's a little bit more difficult to uh, translate. Uh, but above all, um, since these products now are also extending into fish, uh, cultured or cultivated fish has a slightly different um, sort of connotation and it's more, more like aquaculture of salmon in, in the ocean. Um, so they wanted to make sure that there was no confusion across those uh, uh, species. So they um, said, okay, and then, then cell-based because then people understand that it's really something different. Um, I, I think as a, a sort of uh, compromise is that the um, the American term cell cultured meat uh, makes probably a little bit more sense, although it is a you know very technical and and not very mm -hmm. easy. Term are are to, they uh, talking about having some kind of logo or symbol on the packaging to indicate uh, that this is different from meat that comes from an animal? Um, not yet, but I think that will happen, that you will have, you know, instead of a cow of a symbol of a cow, a logo of a cow on the package that you have a Petri dish or something or a bioreactor or whatever <laughs> logo you can, you can think of. Um, so personally, I think, you know, using the term meat for this, um, uh, as long as the tissue is indeed a good mimic of meat. Uh, to me makes sense because to call it something else than meat would could right. also be misleading um, but yeah to to somehow indicate to the consumer that it's not made in a traditional way but it's um, made in a bioreactor or a petri dish or in a um, in a factory um, obviously is necessary now the a bioreactor basically is a giant petri dish right but it's made yeah. of stainless stainless steel 
and and you're talking here about the manufacture of very very large bioreactors and lots of them which are yeah. obviously is going to be an, an expense so yeah. uh the question now is, you know, how far along are we here and what is the time frame that we're looking at whereby the the nutrients that the cells need will be produced at a reasonable cost where all of these giant steel bioreactors will become uh, available and that uh, people will be able to go into a store and buy the, the cell cultured meat at a price that is comparable to regular meat. So what, what is our time frame here? Yeah, um, I, I think there are, there are a couple of different things here. Um, uh, but to get the price down, uh, so to get the price of the nutrients down, which is happening as we speak, I don't, I'm not worried about that. Uh, but to get the price of the growth factors down will take another uh, three years or so to get it down to the real cost of the growth factors. And then um, then we can actually produce this at um, at price parity. Uh, so that will take a couple of years, uh, but but not uh, not two, but also not five. Um, so somewhere in between that. In order to be able to produce it at scale, um, at large, large scale, so if you would replace the entire um, livestock um, beef industry by uh, bioreactors, you would need to increase the total world capacity of fermentation by a factor one and a half. Um, so, and, and if you, um, um, most people, including myself, don't really have a grasp of how much that is, but. Um, you know, think about the total uh, world fermentation capacity. Think, think about beer, wine, um, all sorts of other uh, uh, fermentations. It's a, it's a lot. It's a big, big um, change and a big uh, amount of steel that we're right. talking about. And, but, you know, in order to get a factory running, um, it takes about three years or so. Um, so to get those 175,000 175, factories across the world uh, running to make a dent in that um, production system will take a long time. So nobody, no farmer has to worry that overnight, uh, all of a sudden his business model is going to disappear. Uh, this is going to be um, over the next decades where it will gradually be um, a replacement of livestock beef as, as we know it. Well, it's fascinating. And uh, obviously, you've already come a long way in the last 10 years from the 300,000 burger. <laughs> uh, right. And uh, right, things are certainly moving along. Uh, in Canada, as far as I know, we don't yet have a restaurant. So I, certainly in Montreal, we don't yet have one that offers this. I'm looking forward no, to you trying don't. I it. Would have, I, I would have known. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, so, the Mark, chairman, thanks very much of, for... The, the chairman of our board is from Montreal, so I would have to... Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, well, do a push so that I can taste this thing here. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thanks very much for chatting with us, and it's uh, an absolutely fascinating topic. 
And uh, as you said, there's no question that it's going to happen to some extent. The time frame, that's a bit uh, up in the air. But, uh, you know, we're, we're not talking centuries. We're, we're talking perhaps a, a couple of decades, and we'll be eating cultured meat. So thanks very much for joining us. Uh, welcome. And that was, uh, and cadmium, and calcium, and chromium, and curium. Uh, uh, There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, mycenium, nobelium, and argon, tantanium, and radon, and zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. All the chemistry in your life. These are the only ones at which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.